Hi, and welcome to Travel Time. Today we're continuing my son and I's battlefield trip. After Fort Necessity, we traveled on and stayed in Hagerstown, Maryland, and went to Antietam Battlefield the next day. We stayed at the Home 2 Suites in Hagerstown. So Antietam is closest to Sharpsburg, but Sharpsburg is a very, very small city, and Hagerstown has a little more choice for hotels. So we were able to get a pretty good deal on a room at Home 2 Suite. It was a very short drive over to Antietam the next morning. I think it was just under half an hour, maybe. The nice thing about this home, two suites, and the location was that it had a whole lot of restaurants around and amenities close by to choose from. It wasn't just one or two restaurants like you can sometimes get at a hotel. It was several. And so that was really nice. It makes it nice to be able to pick from a few different places. We had dinner that night at Crab 99, which was very close to the hotel. We highly recommended this restaurant. We picked it because my son loves crab. And since we're in Maryland... Eating crab is practically required. So I don't and can't eat shellfish. So my options were very limited. I'm just mentioning that for others who may be going with friends who love seafood, but they don't like seafood. I went into it expecting that and we picked it specifically so he could have his favorite dish there. So it wasn't a problem for me. It won't affect the review of this, but he loved his dish. He had snow crab legs and Maryland blue crab, and it was served to him kind of like a boil would be served with the ear of corn and vegetables in there and the crabs. Loved it. He really enjoyed both the way it was served and the crab. So in the morning, we had breakfast and headed over to Antietam National Battlefield. We had signed up in advance for a three-hour private tour through Antietam Battlefield Guides, and we had a great guide. His name was Jim. I highly recommend this personal tour. So we booked this, as I mentioned, several months in advance, I think about March for our July trip, and we paid $100 plus tip for the tour. So we booked it, and in May, Jim reached out to us to let us know that he would be the one doing our tour and offered to customize our tour as much as possible. So if we had special questions or were particularly interested in a particular part of the battle, he could spend a little more time on that, especially since we had different ages in our group, if there are certain things that we wanted to touch on, certain people that were involved in the battle, and asked if we had any relatives that we knew were in the battle so he could look up and see where the, where particularly they fought and make sure that we got to see the area where they fought. I just thought that was a really nice touch of the tour to make it a little more personal. My son is 15, so it was perfect because he could ask a lot of questions and really learn about the battle. Normally during non-COVID times, I believe this tour is actually only a two-hour tour, but the guide rides in your car with you and tells you about and like usually drives your car and tells you about the different things that happen as you're driving from place to place. But because of COVID, we each drove our own cars. So when we got to the places, there was more of telling the stories of it that would have happened in the car. So the tour was a little longer because of that. And that's kind of how they made the adjustment for, or for the tour. So we did not have any relatives in this battle. All of our relatives fought in Grant's division in the campaigns leading up to it, including Vicksburg. So in this particular one, the Maryland campaigns, the Army of the Potomac um, fighting and things like that, we did, didn't include any of our divisions from Indiana, from Indiana that our family were in. So he also sent a read-ahead document that has some short background on the battle so we could kind of read ahead and say, oh, we have a question on this part of it that kind of thing. And that was a really nice touch as well. If you're going to Antietam, I'm just going to, before I go into the tour itself and what we looked at and did, 
I highly recommend the Antietam Battlefield Guides, and particularly Jim. The knowledge was deep. The inside was the insight and the stories he shared made the trip really come alive. And as we we went through the battlefield pretty much in the order the events occurred, which made it kind of come together for you in a different way. I highly recommend look into them. I know there are a couple different groups that may offer them and Tietum Battlefield Guides was the one that I had found that was consistently really highly recommended. I definitely 100% agree. I would do it again in a heartbeat. It's also nice because they do have ranger led tours at some points in the day. This, since it's a smaller group and it's a private tour, you get a lot of chances to ask your own questions and really just kind of get immersed in it a bit different instead of being with a bigger group. It also was able to cover a lot more ground than a ranger led tour because they may go to one spot and do a ranger led tour and not go through the whole sequence of events like this one did. Definitely suggest it. That said, a little bit about Antietam. Antietam was a pivotal battle in the U.S. Civil War. I mean, it occurred on September 17th, 1862, during a series of battles known as the Maryland Campaign. The Union called it Antietam after the nearby creek, and the South called it the Battle of Sharpsburg. The Union Army at this battle was led by George McClellan, and the South was led by Robert E. Lee, and it remains to this day known as the bloodiest single day in American military history. This was the first battle of the war fought on Union soil, and it was considered a victory for the Union. Lee ventured into Maryland for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Virginia landscape was fairly picked clean of resources by this point in the war, and his army was barely in need of supplies, particularly food. So moving into an area where there had not been a lot of battles gave them the opportunity to try to get more food and get away, let the countryside recover, so to speak, in Virginia. The second reason was he also thought there was a good chance that there would be enough Southern sympathizers in the, in the state because it was a border state and that they might be warmly welcomed there. And to his surprise, that really wasn't what happened. There were a decent amount of Southern sympathizers in the state as a whole, but where he went in, he really didn't encounter the warm welcome he was hoping to see when he got there. On the way in, Lee followed kind of a risky strategy and divided his forces when he went in. And a lot of this is about rebuilding the supplies that he needed. He sent a division of his forces over to Harper's Ferry to seize the federal garrison there and the arsenal. And while he, while they were doing that, he continued to march north with the rest of the troops. There was a, also a lost copy of orders which detailed this plan and how the army wouldn't be at full strength because there were two separate divisions. And that was found by two Union soldiers in a field near where the Battle of Monocacy would later be fought. Unfortunately, McClellan had this information and took too long to act on the information and didn't press the advantage, which would have been outnumbering them by even more because of the forces being divided. It still played into the battle, but would have played into the battle a lot more if he had acted on it because some of the troops arrived in time for the battle. Some came later in the day and missed the whole first half of the fighting, retired from the march. So it definitely played in, but wasn't used maybe as well, as much as it could have been. The Battle of Antietam, as I mentioned, occurred all in one day and started around dawn on September 17th. So Lee had spread out his army except for AP Hill's division that was still returning from Harper's Ferry along with along the Hagerstown Pike and to the north he and the south he held a ridge anchored near the white brick Dunker Church which still stands today and there's still the remnants of the bullet holes and things that can be seen there we started our tour 
by standing on the rise at the visitor center, which is right by Dunker Church. Dunker Church is basically right across the road from the visitor center. And we stood up on the rise where you can pretty much see the lay of the battlefield. So this was a really helpful place to start, um, both because you could kind of take a look at the exhibits inside, but you could also look over the vista and see everything from the cornfields where the battle started all the way over to Burnside's Bridge, where a lot of the things kind of wrapping up at the end of the day. I highly recommend starting there because it's nice to kind of get your bearings and know where you are in the whole scheme of things as you're leaving. We left from there. We went over to the site of where the first of the three major assaults on the South started. So at Antietam, the Union-led troops under Joseph Hooker were mounting the first of the three major assaults in the South. He immediately ran into the Southern forces under John Bell Hood, and the attacks and counterattacks were focused on a 30-acre cornfield that's now known as the Bloody Cornfield, and they were focused on the West Woods. After Hooker was repulsed by Hood, Meade advanced. One of Hood's regiments, the 1st Texas, left over 82% of its men in the Bloody Cornfield, just for some perspective. And I think it's important to note that a lot of these regiments in the Civil War were raised from like neighborhoods. The 1st Texas Regiment, they were all probably from the same neighborhood or from the same small town, things like that. So when you lost 82% of, of a unit, you're talking 82% of the boys all in one very localized area lost in that one day. Really big hits to like the local communities and things like that. Our guide really drove that home because he showed a map. Later, we'll, I'll talk about we went to the Westwoods. He showed a map of where all the people who died lived, like marked on the map. And it was all this one neighborhood for this one division. And you could just sense all of the families, like neighbors. They were all neighbors and brothers and cousins and things like that. Just really powerful when you think about it that way. By 8.30 in the morning on the day of the battle, Jackson's division containing the famed Stonewall Brigade was reduced to only a few hundred men and all of the highest ranking officers had fallen. So the unit was now led by a lieutenant colonel. Lee was out of nearby reinforcements, but had not been fully defeated. So Lee rushed in reinforcements from the march from Harper's Ferry under McLaws. And after some fierce fighting with Sedgwick's Union forces, stabilized what was left of the Westwoods. The fighting over the cornfield in the Westwoods lasted for about four hours and remained indecisive. McClellan did not press the, the small advantage he had on this, and it gave Lee a little bit of time to regroup. So on our tour... We went from the visitor center and we went first to the farm near the, the bloody cornfield where a hospital was set up. Claire Barton, who was the founder of the Red Cross, herself worked on the site tending to the wounded. So she was potentially at this hospital, was out in the fields tending to people. She was very active on the site at Antietam. We then crossed the street to an area where McClellan's troops camped out the night before the battle in the trees near the cornfield. And our guide took a little time just to kind of have us think about all the preparations that were probably going on. They knew a battle was coming the next day. And it was really sobering to think of the soldiers camped there, getting ready to go to sleep at night, knowing that a battle was starting at dawn, and many of them writing what would end up being their last letters home. Oliver Wendell Holmes, a future Supreme Court justice, was among those encamped there that night. We drove around from this spot over, looking over the cornfield. So the spot where we were, where they camped, we were looking out over the cornfield as it would have looked when they were getting ready to head out the next morning. And kind of the view, the view they had of what was all in front of them, what would end up being the entire battlefield for Antietam. We drove around from that spot to the left flank of where Lee's armies would have been, where Hooker advanced. Of the forces advancing in the morning, the Iron Brigade was key in the efforts. We'll hear from them again when we visit Gettysburg soon. They were one of the most celebrated brigades in the Civil War. And it was the only all-Western infantry brigade in the East up until post-Gettysburg, 
when Eastern regiments were added to reinforce and rebuild the brigade. They were also known as the black hats because of distinctive black hats they wore in the regiment. We took our picture there by the Indiana 19th Memorial. They were part of the Iron Brigade from our home state. The thing that I think is really interesting, and I'll stop here to mention it, but is valid for all the parts. There were really clear markers all over Antietam about where different brigades were stationed, what was going on in those spots during the war. And it was all the work of one veteran who, when they made Antietam, they decided to preserve it, which was relatively soon after the Civil War, just a couple of years. He started writing letters to all the veterans to ask about their time at Antietam because he was a veteran of Antietam and knew what he had been doing that day. But people involved in one part of the battle weren't necessarily front and center on the next part of the battle. He wrote thousands of letters to people who had fought in Antietam. Some he didn't receive any apply. Some he got something back and wasn't totally helpful. But then he had some that sent things back and it was detail after detail kind of not only do I remember it but I have night I have dreams and nightmares about it once a week and this is exactly what happened this is exactly where everyone was these are the things that were happening where I was so from the you know say hundreds of the thousands that he got which was a relatively small percentage but they were so detailed he was able to piece together where everyone was that day the markers that you see in Antietam are from that work So he placed together all the locations of all the different battalions and brigades and divisions. And these markers are up when you were driving around, which makes it a lot easier for you to see kind of where everyone was situated during the battle. It's phenomenal. No other battlefield, our guide was sharing with us that no other battlefield had this kind of effort put into where exactly everyone was and getting the information from the vets themselves. So it was, it's incredibly detailed there. And it's just really, uh, it's really amazing to be able to have that. So we proceeded on during our tour to the West woods, um, which was still along the left flank where Cedric's men had been violent, valiantly fighting, but had been repulsed. Cedric himself was, was badly wounded Our guide also shared the story of a 15-year-old soldier who, after an artillery team was gunned down, he had the presence of mind to operate the cannon and fire on the Southerners while he was still under heavy fire. Given my son was also 15 at the time, it was sobering to think of a kid his age having the presence of mind under fire to achieve this act of bravery, or even frankly, just kind of from our sense of privilege and where we are in this day and age, even having to do that. It was just really amazing to think about someone my own son's age doing that. It was also here in the West Woods that the 15th Massachusetts lost 330 men. And so this was the vision that our guide was sharing us information about where all these guys that died were from. And they were all just from right within the same like couple blocks. This was the highest number lost of any regiment on either side at Antietam. So 330 just pretty much right here in the West Woods. Oliver Wendell Holmes, again, who was at the campsite we mentioned before, I was also shot in the neck and left for dead in the Westwoods, but obviously ended up surviving and going on to become a Supreme Court justice. In 25 minutes of confused fighting in the Westwoods, Sedgwick, who had gone in with 5,400 men, had 2,200 casualties, killed, wounded, captured, or missing. The Southerners followed the retreating soldiers, but in a, when they were emerging from the Westwoods, they came under a deadly barrage from the Union cannon lined up in front of the Eastwoods, and the Southerners fell back. Now, the Eastwoods were pretty far away, but the Union had some newer-style cannons that could shoot at much greater distances than the old cannons had. So these, this battle, that, that ended up being a very key point. After five hours of heavy fighting on the day, 
there were already 12,000 casualties at Antietam, and the day was far from over. The second major Union assault was by Union forces under the under French towards Lee Center. For nearly four hours from 9.30 to 1, fighting ranged along what was then known as a sunken road. The South held the road initially, and it was a road that was sunken because of heavy use by carts and horses taking goods from the farms to the market. It was an excellent defensive position and took the Union over three hours of intense fighting to overtake it. The Union attacked the center first and suffered terrible casualties in just the first hour. In just one hour, French lost almost one-third of his command, 1,750 people. The southern forces were sent to reinforce D.H. Hill on the sunken road, but they were only of moderate help because they were heavily attacked en route. The famed Irish Brigade from the Union, led by Thomas Francis Meagher, an Irish revolutionary who had escaped banishment to Tasmania and went to the U.S., also incurred very heavy losses and casualties. Losses in some of the Irish Brigade regiments exceeded 60%. General Caldwell's Union Brigade, meanwhile, replaced them on the front line. And by this time, the Southerners who were in the sunken road had already fought back four assaults and inflicted heavy losses, but their casualties by this time were mounting as well. Caldwell's regiment started attacking from the opening of the lane and into the center, and that finally captured the lane. The area had such heavy casualties, about 5,600 people, and became known as Bloody Lane. For our tour, we proceeded on our tour over to Bloody Lane, and our guide shared the story of that part of the battle. By the end of this second major engagement during the battle, casualties were over 17,500. So it continued to be just really high, and that's, that's the cumulative total. The third major engagement actually occurred overlapping with the time that the fighting was happening at the Bloody Lane. It was at the lower bridge on Antietam Creek, which is now known as Burnside's Bridge. Burnside's Ninth Corps was facing A.P. Hill, who had just finally arrived from Harper's Ferry, and the remaining units on Lee's right flank. A.P. Hill was occupying the high ground, and to pursue them, Burnside's men had to cross the lower bridge under heavy fire. The waters of the creek at this point averaged four to five feet deep, so Crossing it without the bridge was impossible. Not only would it be slow and they would be at great risk of being gunned down while they were crossing in a much slower fashion, but it also was a big risk to their gunpowder. So if the gunpowder got wet, they wouldn't be able to fire their weapons. So not only would they be being fired upon, they couldn't return fire. So crossing at a point other than the bridge was not a feasible option. So Burnside's men eventually carried the bridge around 1 p.m., and which was almost the exact time that the southern lines collapsed at the sunken road. And after crossing the bridge, Burnside came under heavy artillery fire from the soldiers on the ridge. The 9th New York Zouaves pursued A.P. Hill to the edge of Sharpsburg. We ended our tour by visiting Burnside's bridge to see the lay of the land there and then driving up on the ridge where A.P. Hill was holding the southerners' line. Lee ended up retreating to Sharpsburg from there, and eventually the next day he withdrew from Maryland back across the Potomac. Although the Union won, the casualties on both sides were immense, and so this McClellan didn't push the advantage that he had gained with the war, but a lot of it was also because the casualties were so immense on both sides. So it it would have been very difficult to regroup everyone in that circumstance and pursue in the fashion that he would probably have wanted to. The total casualties at Antietam across the entire Basel were almost 23,000 for the day. 
the victory is also important for another reason. In addition to being known as the bloodiest day of the Civil War and of American military history, it was the first victory in quite a while for the Union. And the victory gave Lincoln the positive news he needed to change the direction of the war. So this victory directly led to the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln had announced to his cabinet just five days after the battle that he intended to issue the proclamation. It was first proposed in July of 1862, but due to a string of uh, one battlefield defeat after another, they waited. Antietam was the victory that allowed them to be able to make that announcement. The war stopped being a war to reunite the reunion at that point and became a war to end slavery. So when you say it's a pivotal battle... This was one of the ma- major places where it was pivotal. Not only was it with the first Union victory in quite a while, but it changed the direction of the war. And it changed the war into a moral crusade and not just a battle to reunite the nation. On our trip, this wrapped up our trip to Antietam, and we retreated into Sharpsburg ourselves. But this, for us, it was to have an ice cream at a shop their guide recommended, Nutter's Ice Cream. I will say I highly recommend this very cute shop. It's a kind of old-fashioned looking ice cream store on the inside. The ice cream was excellent, and it was just the thing on a hot July day. Of note, it is cash only, so make sure you have cash before going in. And they have all the usual types of flavors, but they also have some fun seasonal flavors that are worth checking out. So as you know, we visited in July of 2021, so... COVID protocols were still very much in effect. So only a couple of people could be in store at a point. We waited outside in a line for about 15 minutes or so, and it was very warm, but it was well worth it. So highly recommend stopping in there for a treat after your tour. For us, we also hadn't had lunch yet. So we grabbed the ice cream, but then we headed to a spot, another spot the guide recommended, which was a lunch spot called the Blue Moon Cafe. And we were actually headed to Harper's Ferry next. So it was perfect because it was right on the way to Harper's Ferry. So we stopped there. It's a very cute restaurant, has indoor and outdoor seating options, and a great selection of sandwiches and salads. Very much recommend that if you're in the area. Check it out. Have a great lunch. Everything we had there was excellent. Definitely recommend it. It's right on a small college campus. So there's some parking kind of right across like caddy corner from it. Check it out. As I mentioned, after lunch, we headed over to Harper's Ferry and then over to Monocacy Battlefield before heading to Gettysburg for the night. So we will have more on the second half of the day in our next episode, and I'll talk a little bit about both Harper's Ferry and Monocacy. And until then, happy travels. Happy travels.